Tonight I'd like to share some reflections with you on this beautiful quality of mind, namely loving-kindness. And in particular, it's, it's because there's a number of people on this retreat that are doing uh, this practice of loving-kindness for their central practice while they're here for either a month or two months. And there are also, I think, a number of people that are bringing this into your, your practice as a, a kind of an adjunct. And it's been a, an incredibly powerful practice for me as well. So this is one of the reasons I want to share with you some reflections. I uh, practiced in the Zen tradition for many years, for about six years before I dove into this world of Theravada. Uh, I was living at a Zen monastery and then finally got ordained. And within that tradition, uh, a Dharma talk, uh, the Japanese word for it is Teisho. And one way, at least uh, uh, figuratively, that, that this word Teisho is translated is not only as Dharma talk, but as celebration. And tonight, it's not only about sharing with you reflections on this, this beautiful quality of mind, loving-kindness, but it's also a kind of celebration. So I offer this to you as, as both reflections and so that we can celebrate together such a beautiful quality. And I'd like to begin by framing uh, this practice in kind of the language of, of early Buddhism. Namely, this language of cultivation. We're here to cultivate that which is skillful, that which is wholesome, and to abandon that which is unwholesome, that which is unskillful. And you might remember a few nights ago, uh, Andrea, did uh, I found such a striking job of explaining this activity of abandonment, abandoning. Bringing these qualities of, and I loved how she put it, if, if I got it right, non-resistance. Not resisting what's, what, what's arising right now, yet also not fueling it. And through that balance, uh, what arises is a kind of understanding, a kind of clear seeing. And from that, that's where the letting go happens. That's where the abandoning happens. Whereas with loving kindness in this framework of early Buddhism, it's this, this quality that we're cultivating, cultivating the wholesome, the skillful. But I also want to frame uh, this talk and this quality in a different language, not only the language of early Buddhism, but in a, um, a more modern language that uh, I, I feel brings out uh, different qualities of it, different important aspects of it. And what I'd like to share with you is actually the ending of a poem by W.S. Merwin. Uh, the poem is called River of Bees. And it's a, a striking, uh, beautiful poem that has these archetypal images in it. For example, there's a part in the, in the poem where uh, he's going through these rooms, through these doors, trying to find out how to live. 
And from that poem, the last line is what I'd like to share with you. He says, on the door it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. On the door it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. It's funny how we forget that, right? Have you noticed that? This truth. You're not going to survive. This is the reality that we're in. We have this precious life. What will you do with it? What is it to live? How to understand this on an, another level? I think there's many levels that we can understand these, these words of Merwin. Sometimes when I hear this word of survive, that on the door, it, it says what to do to survive. What comes to my mind are these uh, these reactivity, the reactivity of this mind. The planning, the figuring out, the worrying. The, the grasping for that which is pleasant. The moving away from that which is unpleasant. Trying to manipulate experience. This feeling quality of what can I do to survive? And all the while forgetting that I'm here, I'm here to live. And to live, what I want to propose to you is very simple. It's to love. It's to love with a heart that has this unrestricted, open quality of, of loving kindness. And I, I want to share with you this language that I'm, I'm taking from Merwin because sometimes, not always, sometimes the language of early Buddhism uh, gets misinterpreted. And you might notice this yourself. I know I went through this phase where I, I hear the language of early Buddhism and it feels like this negation, complete negation of living, this kind of almost nihilism to it. I remember being on a retreat and hearing these Dharma talks again and again and feeling like I was being... Um, encouraged to be some kind of zombie. <laughs> I don't think that's what, what this is about. It's about living. Coming into a space of more vibrancy, a quality of fluidity, which is expressed through this quality of mind, of loving kindness. To live is to love. Loving kindness. I want to just take some time to talk about what it is and what it isn't. As you know, it it comes from this uh, Pali word, uh, metta. 
And for those of you who were here this afternoon for um, Greg leading the loving kindness practice, I so appreciated what he was connecting it with, which you might remember the definition, which is this simple quality of friendliness. Another word that might fit is benevolence. That warm-hearted quality. Wishing for the welfare of others. And, and I love where the, this polyterm metta comes from. It's derived from uh, both uh, mid and majati, which means to fatten which is really important to remember, especially when you go back home from retreat and you get on that scale and you realize that you've gained five pounds. That is a time to celebrate, (laughs) right? You've become full fat with loving kindness. That's what we're looking for. (laughs) I know you thought you were coming here to lose some weight, but it's going to go the other way. But please don't give uh, your doctor my phone number about that. <laughs> and also, uh, Greg mentioned this uh, this afternoon what's called the proximate cause of, of loving kindness, is, which is uh, seeing that which is lovable, either in another person or in ourselves. So I really boil it down to these, these two qualities of loving kindness. When I define it, I just say it, it's that it's seeing the goodness in others or ourselves and wishing them well or wishing ourselves well. Seeing goodness, sensing that goodness, and then it's that that wish. What isn't loving kindness? What's the kind of love that I'm not talking about tonight? It said that the near enemy, the near enemy of of loving kindness is either attachment or greed. I like to call it uh, greedy love. And what I'd like to share with you is uh, an image that I find very striking that I I feel uh, it's both a a story and an image that that, uh, embodies this. And like me, you might be able to relate to this. And it comes from a platonic dialogue called the Symposium. And I want to share with you the setting of this of this dialogue. Back in the time of Socrates, a symposium symposium was a drinking party. And the symposium was a number of these men getting together to drink and to talk about love. And in particular, to, um, uh, to give speeches. They each gave a speech in praise to celebrate love, their own view of love. And there were a whole cast of characters there. There was a, a, a comic playwright by the name of Aristophanes. It was at Agathon's house. And a fellow by the name of Alcibiades, who in the background is, is finding himself falling in love with Socrates so deeply. And as they're going around and telling their stories, it comes to Aristophanes, who's this comic playwright. And please remember, uh, comedy, especially in Greek times, is the darkest view of, of what it is to be a human being. Funny, 
But when you really, really look at it, a very dark view. And I think it, it, it really exemplifies this greedy love. And Aristophanes tells this story. He says, uh, he gives this uh, a story of the origin of, of our lives. And he says, once upon a time, where we, we were these cartwheels. And there was three different kinds of cartwheels. There were cartwheels with uh, two women stuck together that would roll around together. Or two men stuck together that would roll around together. Or a man and a woman. And of course, at this time, everyone was living happily until, as you know, in all Greek stories, somebody makes the gods angry. And voila, Zeus decides through his anger to separate everyone out of these cartwheels, leaving them in the state of looking for their other half. The sense of, I am incomplete, and out there, there is someone out there that is going to complete me, that's going to give me a sense of wholeness. Have any of you ever got into a relationship where you had that feeling, that urge of this person is going to complete me? And do you remember what happened in that relationship? (laughs) Need I say more? That is the disaster of greedy love. I have some feeling and I have this belief that something outside of me is going to take it away so that I once again can feel complete, whole, maybe even perfect. And this love, this greedy love, can also take this this quality that can be summed up in this simple phrase, if only. If only you were more like this than that. If only you put the toilet seat down. (laughs) There's the wanting, the wanting the other person to be something than they are. And it's not only in relationship with others that this arises. Have you noticed this arise in your relationship, for example, to this practice? Maybe if I come here on a month-long retreat and I engage in this, this will be the thing that finally makes me feel complete and whole and perfect. And I'm sure you've noticed the if-onlys arise at least once or twice. And not only to this retreat, but to this practice of loving-kindness. Sending the feeling of loving-kindness or wanting to receive it in order to desperately change ourselves or another person's predicament. And the beautiful thing about loving-kindness is it doesn't have these qualities. It doesn't have the desperate longing to be complete. The if-onlys. That's the beautiful quality of it. There's an absence of that. And this is one of the things I really invite you to check out. When there's a feeling of loving-kindness that's arising, can you take some time to really sense that? Because within that, there's an absence. There's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
And the Buddha was very clear, just in terms of an insight practice, to notice this. You might remember with, with the four foundations of mindfulness, that third foundation of mindfulness, being aware of mind. It's very clear. It's an understanding, uh, as he says, here a, a practitioner understands a mind affected by lust as a mind affected by lust. But also a mind unaffected by lust as a mind unaffected by lust. Or a mind unaffected by hatred as a mind unaffected by hatred. This is important because you might notice these are the moments that we miss. We, we catch the mind when it's, when it's um, uh, lost in aversion or in craving. But there are moments arising for all of you where there's an absence of these. Can you notice them? Can you actually celebrate them? And what do I mean by celebrate them? To notice them, to be with them, to give them space like this quality of loving kindness. It's a beautiful quality of mind. It's a beautiful quality of our hearts. There's a wonderful poem that's attributed to Hafiz, which I I, I think expresses this quite well. Entitled, The Sun Never Says... Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. That kind of love. So again, loving kindness, it's seeing the goodness in others and wishing them well. Without this grasping, a love that lights the whole sky. And some of you might already be noticing this in your loving kindness practice, if this is something that you're doing occasionally or if you're doing it for the entire retreat. Is, uh, and I found this fascinating when I did a, a, a long retreat uh, on loving kindness, is the different flavors of metta that can arise. There can be so many different kind of hues and flavors that arise that are really important for this path of, of, of healing and awakening. For example, there can really be an exuberance or a vibrancy to it. The Buddha has a quote which I, I, I feel fits with this. It says, just as in the pre-dawn darkness, the morning star shines, blazes and dazzles, Even so, all the grounds for making merit leading to the arising in heaven do not equal one-sixteenth of the liberation of mind through loving kindness. Loving kindness surpassing them shines, blazes, dazzles. And there can be that experience at times where there's there's a, a, quite a bit of energy that really feels that's pervading the body or the heart space. As one is saying the phrases or has the image of a friend or a benefactor or oneself. 
But not only that flavor, at times it might be a, a very calm feeling, stable and steady, a, a coolness to it. Or a flavor of patience. Or very importantly, the flavor of acceptance. And this I, I want to slow down with, this flavor of loving kindness, because I think it's important to, to notice it and to, uh, to allow it in. What kind of flavor of acceptance? What would be an example of this? I'd like to share with, share with you a story of, a, um, of an incident that happened that, that I think exemplifies this flavor. A few years ago, a, a practitioner came on a retreat I was leading. And she told this remarkable story. She... She is a nurse. She was a nurse. And at work one day, she went into work and she was helping a patient and actually made a mistake. And instead of this patient getting better, that patient got worse. Just a a painful thing to go through. And of course, it wasn't, if only it was only the regret, it would be a lot easier. But of course she felt regret. But then what got heaped onto that was was the paralyzing shame the self-hatred, and then fitting into this, this uh, framework that her, her mind would always fall into of something's wrong with me. Not only that a, that a the mistake happened, but this is an indication that I'm flawed. And she came home completely torn up. And her partner sat down with her holding her hands and said to her, listen, honey, I love you no matter what mistake you make at work. What a beautiful love. To be loved regardless of the mistakes you make. She said it was shocking and powerful to actually feel, and she said it was just to be able, for that moment, to let in this love of complete acceptance for who she was in that moment. And she said that's when she really started to get loving kindness, was was, uh, through that experience, the depth of acceptance that that this is uh, loving kindness is about. Can you give yourself that quality of acceptance? This depth of okayness, of friendliness, that's not contingent on you being a certain way or doing certain things. And really, this is what we're, we're opening the space to nurture, uh, especially when we're doing this loving kindness towards ourselves. And there's another flavor that, that, that is uh, intertwined with this, which I would say is, is um, it's a little bit different than acceptance. It's, it's more this getting the sense, especially in ourselves and others, of this goodness that has this uh, uh, quality of potential. Maybe that's the right word. I remember having an experience of this when 
I was a monk and uh, it was in the Rinzai Zen tradition. So it was, uh, a lot of it was doing this koan practice. So you would go into the, to my teacher, the Zen master many times uh, doing this koan work. And it was the first time I was uh, in presence, in the presence of someone that actually had uh, complete faith in my ability to wake up. It was uh, really quite unbelievable. And I would come in and it would be a palpable feeling to me of this person has complete confidence that my practice is going to lead to awakening. And I wish to tell you that this wasn't so, but I think it, it took me years to start to let that in. And the reason is because I had such a strong belief system around this quality of inadequacy that even though I could feel it, it was so difficult to believe in this potential. And I feel so grateful to have a teacher that was willing to hold that for me with steadiness until I could start to let that in. This potential to wake up, that is a goodness. Seeing the goodness in others, seeing the goodness in yourself. Can you begin to let that in, to trickle in? This is an essential aspect of this path, is touching your own potential as well as the potential of others to awaken, to completely awaken. And then there's another flavor of of this practice of loving kindness that I want to talk about. First of all, I'd like to say, wouldn't it be cool to go on a retreat and those were all the flavors of loving kindness and the practice was all about that? Wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) Oh, if it only were so. But maybe like me, you also have experienced there can be times that are temporary and sometimes they feel like they can last forever where we're practicing loving kindness and is completely flat. There's no heart connection to it whatsoever. The feeling of no loving kindness coming in and no loving kindness coming out. And I want to point out that that's an important aspect of this, uh, of this practice of loving kindness is going through the doldrums. That is part and parcel of it. And I want to take some time to talk about that because this kind of flatness is, is what makes it so difficult. That's what stirs up a lot of times uh, the other feelings that, that accompany this practice, the shame, the judgment, the guilt, the anger, the boredom. This is part of the healing. This is part of the awakening that comes from the practice of loving kindness. And I think what makes it so difficult is that somehow we think we know how this path unfolds and that these doldrums are not supposed to happen. But that's not the case. This is how this path unfolds, is having phases like that. And it's also, I I just want to acknowledge something that I think is important to acknowledge. It's difficult also because of our family history. 
and I want to remind you of where you come from. And it's amazing how we can forget this. But to remind you that you are actually a mammal. <laughs> it's very, really important. <laughs> a particular kind of animal. And just like, for example, if you have mice, you have a mice and you have a little lever, and when the mice hits the lever, it gets a pellet. It has the incentive to keep on hitting that, that lever. Right? This is, um, those of you who have that uh, psychology background, this is, this is what B.F. Skinner was all about. Conditioning. And that's what it makes it so easy to learn something, is when you hit the lever and you get a pellet, then it's, it's so much more enjoyable to hit that lever again. But if you start hitting the lever and you don't get a pellet, what happens? You don't want to hit the lever anymore. So I, I want to acknowledge this practice is difficult because a lot of times you're going to get the, hit the lever and you're not going to get the pellet. <laughs> and I say this in order for you to be easy on yourselves, to have a, a quality of kindness. So maybe some of you out there are wishing, oh, if only I were not a mammal. <laughs> I got some bad news. <laughs> This is uh, what comes with the territory. What's the antidote to this? This is where faith comes in. Deep faith to carry us through these difficulties. Because what you're engaging in, and this is, this is for me why I, I can feel so moved by coming in here and to sit with you is, 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 is this acknowledgement of what you're engaged in is a kind of invisible work that is incredibly powerful. I'd like to share with you a poem with that title, entitled Invisible Work, because I feel it, it, uh, it brings out uh, this, this very important point for not only our loving-kindness practice, but for whatever practice you're doing on this retreat. It's a poem by Alison Luterman. She begins, Because no one could ever praise me enough. Because I don't mean these poems only, but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work about the young woman on welfare I interviewed years ago who said, it's hard. You bring him to the park, run rings around yourself, keeping them safe, cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner. And there's no one to say what a good job you're doing, how you were patient and loving for the thousandth time, even though you had a headache. And I, who am used to feeling sorry for myself because I am lonely, when all the while, as the Chippewa poem says, I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Thought of the invisible work that stitches up the world day and night. The slow, unglamorous work of healing. The way worms in the garden tunnel ceaselessly so the earth can breathe and bees ransack this world into being. 
While owls and poets stalk shadows, our loneliest labors under the moon. There are mothers for everything, and the sea is a mother too. Whispering and whispering to us long after we have stopped listening. I stopped and let myself lean a moment against the blue shoulder of the air. The work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art. I, I so appreciate her examples of invisible work. Worms tunnel, tunneling ceaselessly so the, through the earth so they can breathe. Unseen work. Or bees. Where would we be right now if it wasn't for the pollinators? All the unseen work that they do. Or even better, and I'm sure the mothers out there can really appreciate this, cutting hot dogs into bite-sized pieces. Who sees that? Who appreciates it? It's important to remember while you're here, you're involved in a kind of invisible work. There's no way to tell the power of what you're doing here. It's invisible to us. So it takes a great amount of faith. So important to remember. As I mentioned a bit earlier, I want to talk about another flavor of, uh, of loving kindness that will tie into this, which is very important. That helps us with this invisible work. And that's remembering there really is a, a, a power and a kind of protection that comes from loving kindness. As I mentioned earlier, we're, and, and actually many of the teachers have mentioned this, we're not looking to cultivate a kind of loving kindness that is fueled and entangled by this desperate wanting, a desperate wanting to change my life or sending loving kindness to all these people because we, we hope it's going to change other people's lives. And yet, I want to point out, there is something really mysterious about this practice and the power of it. And, and, and the Buddha was very clear about this. He, he for example, encouraged his monks to practice loving kindness to these, um, these certain kinds of snakes to protect themselves from the snakes. There's places in the, in, in the discourses where, where um, he talks about it as a protection. For example, he says, I allow you monks to, fu- to suffuse these four royal snake lineages with a mind of loving kindness for the sake of self-protection, self-guarding, self-preservation. How is it powerful? How is it a protection? One example of this, uh, 
Um, a while ago, I, I led a, a loving kindness retreat, and um, a person came on at the retreat that I that I I knew their background quite well because I'd been working with them for a while, and they had a difficult um, living situation. They were the mother in this family it was her and her husband and her son, and her son for a very long time had been acting out, and they'd done the whole gamut individual therapy for the parents, for the child, family therapy, couples counseling. And for me, it was so difficult to watch because they'd try one thing after another and it would be like nothing changed for this child. And as you know, in this kind of situation, this is kind of the family dynamic and often children are kind of the designated client, the kind of the symptom that expresses the problem of the whole system. And they try all kinds of things and it just wasn't changing. And so she came on the retreat and she began to really take up this practice of loving kindness. And I want to point out, she wasn't trying to... um, change the family dynamic or change uh, her son's um, behavior. It's kind of like giving up on that. It was just, and I was amazed. She came back a month later and said that the, the, her, her, her son's behavior had completely changed. Within a month, within three or four weeks of doing loving kindness on a, on a, a, a daily basis. How did that work? to actually change a a very uh, rigid family dynamic. I have no idea. (laughs) And that's, I think, one of the wonderful things about this practice, this practice of loving kindness. We don't need to know how it works. We simply have to need the faith that it will work in its mysterious ways. It is a power and a protection that I feel that our minds can't fathom at times. I'd like to move on to uh, speaking about another aspect of loving-kindness, and that's its uh, liberating power. There's a number of places in the, in the discourses by the Buddha where he uses this phrase, phrase of uh, liberation of the mind by loving-kindness. For example, the sentence, for this, friend, is the escape from ill will, namely the liberation of the mind by loving-kindness. Not only do we heal from loving kindness, but it provides the basis for liberation for this mind. How does it provide the foundation? What does it give us for our practice towards awakening? One of the things that it it provides, which some of you uh, on this retreat might be exploring, is uh, this quality of stabilizing the mind. It really does lead to um, concentration. Just a, a few things um, about that, which I, I think are important, and some of this is just going to be repeating what you've heard, but it's good to hear things again and again. 
And that's what I found to be so helpful was the, the quality of, of the repetition, of coming back to it again and again with this quality of diligence, of persistence, yet relaxed. And the image that comes to mind is actually the, the image that Greg gave us. Do you remember the, his story? I, it, it's, it's always, every day at this retreat, I've come back to the image that he gave of holding the, the, um, the hawk, firm but gentle. Can you bring that to your loving kindness practice? Really a, a quality of diligence, but also a quality of ease. And I think another thing that exemplifies that is, uh, which uh, Greg mentioned during the Brahma Viharas too, is the, the new statue in the, in the back there. If you, you might even want to turn around and take a look at it, which appears to me, it looks like it's um, from a, a semblance of the statue of, of Kuan Yin at the Nelson At- Atkins Museum which uh, some of you have probably have seen it, but it's such a beautiful combination, right, of, uh, if you look at it, just uh, the perfect posture of ease. With the hand going out and the relaxed, um, relaxed arm and hand and the, the posture of the legs. And look at her, right? At the same time that there's the ease, there's an uprightness, there's an alertness. This is the art that you're learning is is that embodiment that we see in that in that statue. So it provides a, a foundation in terms of stabilizing the mind. I think it also uh, provides a foundation in other ways. One way because I feel like it situates our happiness and freedom in the correct way. What do I mean by that? This is particularly the case when we start to get into categories uh, beyond ourself, where where it's not only about ourselves, but it's about other beings that we start to bring in. And what I found it so helpful is that it it begins to tear my practice out of some kind of self-centric view. That this path and this practice is not simply about me. It's much broader than that. What's what we're trying to break through is the, the confines of a self-centric view, the confines of self-identification. Because it's, it's so pervasive. Sometimes I, I think it's uh, wonderful just to, to uh, become curious for a day about the quality of thoughts that arise. What are our thoughts centered around for 90% of the time? Me. <laughs> What a beautiful practice to have have um, a practice that begins to tear us out of that towards this more this intention about the liberation of all beings. I have a friend who is a Tibetan practitioner, and he once came on a, a vipassana retreat. I love this what he said about it. He he was completely shocked that each time uh, there was a meditation period they, that we did not start with um, uh, setting forth as a group an altruistic intention. He thought that was the strangest thing. How could you sit down and like meditate, sit and meditate or go for walking meditation without first having, um, uh, putting forth that intention? I thought that was a, a, a really important observation. To really have that as a basis, he said, uh, was, was incredibly important for his, his uh, sitting and walking meditation. 
And I, I feel for this tradition, loving kindness can uh, start to give us that, that gestalt, that feeling sense of moving out beyond ourselves. I feel this is most beautifully expressed by um, Shantideva in, in the text, um, uh, the Bodhicharya Vitara, uh, the guide uh, to the Bodhisattva way of life. And you'll hear, well, you'll probably hear two things. There's one that has more of this flavor of compassion, but still of, of this love. And um, I have to admit, it is a bit over the top, but I like over the top. So I, I love his intention that, that under, underlies his, his practice. He says, may I be, a, be the protector for those who are without protectors, a guide for travelers and a boat, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest, and may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling throughout infinite space, so may I be in various ways a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. Having this intention that it's just not about me, about my heart, my mind, but rather something greater an intention that is also heartfelt, something that moves us emotionally. And I feel like this stepping out of uh, this self-centric view uh, deepens even more with the practice of loving kindness and can set the stage for this insight into what's called not-self. And, and maybe one caveat, the self, when I use that, what I mean by that is it's this process of identifying with some aspect of experience. Whose body is this? It's my body. Who is it that likes chocolate ice cream? That's me. <laughs> Who is it that perceives, that can name that as a statue or a plant? Well, I'm the one that perceives Who is it that has the volition to speak or to move my arm? Well, of course, when there's an action, there has to be somebody, and that's me who moves my arm. Or the most subtle is, who is it that's aware? I'm aware. Self-identification. Notice this? So ubiquitous. And yet, this practice of loving-kindness, I feel, helps us uh, break through that. There's a poem by Rumi, the Sufi poet. He says, The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall, and falling, 
they're given wings. What I appreciate about the words of Rumi is this word devastation. The door there is devastation. For, for me, sometimes the feeling sense I get from doing loving kindness, especially repetitively on a long retreat, is that it, it, um, it devastates my experience in a good way by, by breaking down this quality, this, this quality of self, of self-identification. Or to go back to Merwin, it allows me to step out of this confined world of survival in order to begin to live. And I invite you to simply have the curiosity around that. Namely, when you're doing loving kindness, does it have a personal quality to it? Is it you that is generating Loving kindness? Is that the flavor of it? What do you notice about the, the essential quality of it when, when uh, engaging in that practice? Because you might notice that there's nothing there that you can call me or mine. And when we touch that with loving kindness, there can be something so liberating as if we're, we're these vessels of, of, of allowing this, this quality of heart to flow through. So I'd like to end just with a, a very short poem by um, uh, Shams, who is the, uh, was the teacher of Rumi. He says, I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. So may our practice of loving kindness lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. So let's sit just for a moment here. <clears throat> 